0: Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California has a rich history of environmentalism, enacting some of the strictest regulations in the country to combat pollution in our air, land, and water. But a new investigation by CalMatters suggests the state's own watchdog for the handling and disposing of hazardous waste has become one of the biggest out-of-state dumpers of toxic material, for years sending its waste to sites in Arizona and Utah, which have weaker environmental regulations. What has happened is legal, but CalMatters found it is raising concerns with environmentalists and indigenous communities in those states. Joining us to explain why this is happening and the environmental consequences is CalMatters investigative reporter Robert Lewis. Good morning, Robert.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: So this was a four-month-long investigation. How did this begin? What, what picked your interest into this topic?
1: well, there's there's been a lot of talk in recent years about uh, hazardous waste and how we handle it as a state. And I got interested in in understanding a little bit more what what is the system that we have in place. and And one of the things i I noticed was just how much is leaving the state uh, and and started looking into that a little bit more and and came across this story.
0: Mm. What agency or even agencies are responsible for handling toxic waste in the state?
1: well there are agencies all all throughout the state and, and at all levels of of government it, the department of uh, toxic substances control is the state agency responsible for overseeing uh, California's hazardous waste laws, Um, but there are agencies, local public health departments, local public works agencies, uh, all throughout the state that uh, engage in various types of projects and and have various types of uh, oversight responsibilities for what happens on the local level as well.
0: Mm. When you're talking about hazardous material, what type of material, if you can give us some examples, um, are you talking about in your reporting?
1: Sure. So there's a number there. There are many different types of hazardous waste that are are leaving the state. Uh, there's uh, treated wood. There's uh, auto shredder waste. The biggest single source of waste that's leaving this uh, that, that we are generating as a state is contaminated soil. Um, every, every year we're digging up hundreds of thousands of tons of toxic material from the ground, uh, you know, old industrial sites, old military installations, land uh, contaminated with things like lead, uh, chemicals like DDT. And and when we take that out of the ground, it you know, they test it and, and it, they're very often finding it, it has a high enough concentration of contaminants to be considered a hazardous waste. And so then they have to figure out how they're going to going to handle it.
0: When it comes to figuring out how to handle it, where should these materials be disposed of? Do we actually have dedicated sites within the state to handle this type of toxic waste?
1: So if we dispose of uh, hazardous waste within the state of California... It needs to go to a permitted hazardous waste disposal facility. There, there's only two of those within, within the state, uh, Kettleman Hills and uh, uh, Button Willow. And uh, those are sites that that have, they've gone through extra steps, they have extra design requirements, extra safeguards, extra oversight to make sure that they can handle this type of, of dangerous material. What happens is there's there's a, a type of waste that we as a state consider hazardous that doesn't meet the the threshold to to be hazardous under federal laws. And and what happens is the, uh, there's some discretion when it comes to that type of waste. And very often what we're doing is we're taking it over the border to neighboring states or, or nearby states that have weaker environmental regulations. And there, you know, they, they think it's just a pile of dirt. And so we're, we're taking it to regular municipal landfills in in some of these other states.
0: Were you surprised to find out that we were exporting, you know, waste that is deemed toxic by California standards and regulations?
1: I, I was. I mean, I was particularly surprised to see that the state's own hazardous waste watchdog is is one of the biggest out of state dumpers. They, they've taken more than one hundred and five thousand tons of soil contaminated, lead contaminated soil from the site of the biggest cleanup, uh, Exide, uh, in the L.A. area. And they've taken it to Arizona to regular landfills. And and the state by and large has no idea how it's being handled in these other states. I, I interviewed the head of DTSC who acknowledged they don't have the the, the bandwidth to, to really look at it. So it's it really is sort of out of state, out of mind.
0: Right. It's not like those regulations go across the border and these borders are, you know, are, are they're basically like imaginary. I mean, the soil and the land doesn't change when you go from California to Arizona. So did you learn more about why California, uh, this agency, is doing this when we have two de- designated sites in Kern and Kings County?
1: There's a couple of reasons. I I mean, the biggie is is money. It is significantly cheaper to dispose of waste at a regular municipal landfill as opposed to a a hazardous waste landfill. I, I got different estimates, but the state's own cost estimate that they provided me. Uh, put it in the neighborhood of 40 to 60 percent cheaper uh, to to take it out of state. So, you know, on a large project, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. So money is a is a big driver of this. Um, the, the two landfills in the state are also uh, somewhat controversial. They've had a number of uh, environmental issues over the years. Interestingly enough, some of the same environmental advocates who are concerned about the waste leaving the state don't necessarily want it going to one of these two facilities either, which are uh, in prominently areas of, of color. So um, it, it creates a, a difficult situation, admittedly, for, um, for regulators.
0: You were able to talk a little bit to DTSC. That's the California Department of Toxic Substance Control. Did you uh, hear anything from the governor's office?
1: Uh, The governor's office did not respond to uh, multiple requests for comment. So, no.
0: Your reporting also actually took you into these states, right? You traveled to Arizona. Uh, What did you learn from from kind of the I guess what are people there telling you about this, especially because what I learned from your reporting is this also neighbors indigenous communities and, and, and tribal land.
1: So one of the major landfills where we're taking this waste is the La Paz County landfill uh, in uh, Parker, Arizona, and that is at its closest point about five miles from the Colorado River Indian Tribes reservation. Uh, I visited the reservation, uh, talked to to some some of the tribal members who are are understandably concerned about what's being dumped in their in their backyard. And you know, I did talk to experts who said, well, you know, modern landfills are are safe; they're more than equipped to handle this type of waste. Heavy metals don't migrate well through the soil through groundwater but the response from from people in these communities is like okay great well why aren't you dumping it in your backyard then um and i also went i went down to South yuma county landfill which i got down there and was sort of stunned to see it, it neighbors it's right next to an organic date orchard um and all of these uh lush agricultural fields so that's where we're dumping our hazardous waste and there's actually a, a current proposal I went to Utah. Uh, there is a landfill on the on the shore of the Great Salt Lake, right on the Great Salt Lake that is is trying to get a permit to take out of state waste. and And they they're in their economic analysis. They filed with state regulators. They called they called it a, a a unique market opportunity created by California law. So they want to take California waste uh, right on the edge of the Great Salt Lake.
0: Has this been a standard practice in California going back years and decades, or is this something that that's recent?
1: It, it has been going on for decades. I, I found records dating back to the 1980s showing um, that we were sending waste out of state and, and that other states were concerned. O- Oregon, actually, in the late 1980s, passed a rule uh, to effectively stop from from becoming a dumping ground for California waste. There was a proposal at the time for a a medical waste incinerator three miles over the border, and they they passed this sort of almost emergency rule that said if another state considers something to be a toxic waste, we're going to treat it as a toxic waste, even if it doesn't meet that threshold under under our state law. And as a result, Uh, Oregon is not a dumping ground for this for this type of material, uh, whereas Arizona and Utah have become uh, such dumping grounds.
0: Given that California touts itself as a leader in being an environmentalist state and has strict regulations, um, some may be thinking, what's the point of having strict environmental regulations when you're just exporting it elsewhere to a state with weaker regulations?
1: You know, one of the amazing things about this story was uh, I talked to people on on polar opposites. I talked to uh, environmental advocates on one side, and and sort of anti-regulation waste industry people on the other. And everybody met in the middle in agreeing that California is is just a, a big hypocrite. We're we're being hypocrites when it when it comes to how we handle this material and and the regulations that we have.
0: Given that this is a longstanding practice going back decades, I mean, that that sounds, I mean, depressing. Uh, does that did you get anything from your reporting or even talking to the state agency that this practice may change or improve?
1: Well, so there, there has been hope over the years that um, there might be more investment in alternative technologies to treat. Uh, some of some of this soil and some of this contaminated soil on site. Um there is also um talk of there there currently DTSC is uh crafting a new hazardous waste management plan. And you know they said that part of that planning process will be looking at at this type of issue. Um you know that that plan's not due for another two years. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a plan. So um yes, it could change, but There have been a lot of initiatives and there's been a lot of talk about change for decades and this situation uh, has not changed. It it continues to be the same. So, yeah, sure. Maybe it will.
0: Yeah. Given that you talk to people on opposite ends of the spectrum that were actually able to find a middle ground, it seems like that kind of signals that there's a larger problem here. Um, You know, where is this going to take your reporting to next?
1: Well, I, we're going to continue looking at, at how we, as a state, handle uh, our hazardous waste. We we generate a significant amount of waste in this state, um, and uh, it was very evident we don't have the infrastructure in this state to to deal with it, and therefore we end up having to export a lot of it over over our border, and um, have created a system where then we sort of wash our hands of it because it's it's out of our state.
0: Robert, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. You're very welcome. Robert Lewis is an investigative reporter with CalMatters, sharing his reporting, which revealed California is sending nearly half of its toxic waste to other states with weaker environmental regulations. Up next, NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg joins us ahead of her visit to the Mandavi Center at UC Davis. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Since 1975, we've heard Nina Totenberg's voice on national public radio. The longtime legal affairs correspondent is considered a founding mother of NPR at a time when she says that she, Cokie Roberts, Susan Stamberg and Linda Wertheimer, were not trying to break a glass ceiling, but just trying to simply get a foot in the door. And in the nearly 50 years since, Nina has cemented herself as a journalist with an unparalleled perspective of the law and its highest court. Support. Nina Totenberg will be paying the Mondavi Center at UC Davis a visit later this week for a conversation about her new book, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. The memoir, of course, includes a nearly five-decade friendship with the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a friendship that began before Nina's time at NPR and when Ginsburg was a college professor. I sat down with Nina Totenberg, and she tells me this book is about more than just one friendship, but beloved relationships that have anchored and shaped her life. Well, Nina, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm just delighted to be here. So, um, I, as you're probably well aware, you're considered a founding mother of NPR. I actually read a book about about you alongside Cokie Roberts, Susan Stamberg, and Linda Wertheimer, authored by Lisa Napoli last year. I'm just curious, how does it feel to be on the receiving end of of a term like this, which is of endearment and and deep respect?
2: Well, the the longer it lasts, the worse it gets. (laughs) (laughs) So being a founding mother wasn't so bad 20 years ago, but now it's a little bit, okay, let's just move on to calling me something else. Yeah.
0: Given that your time with NPR goes back, you know, to 1975 and soon after that you began reporting on the law and the Supreme Court, I'm just and obviously we now know you as a longtime legal affairs correspondent. What interested you about covering the law and the highest court more so than perhaps other beats?
2: Well, you know, when I started at NPR, I was hired to be the legal affairs correspondent and that included, let me just say, that included the Supreme Court, of course, but the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, the Justice Department, any scandal that occurred, every impeachment up until Trump, and even some of Trump, but mainly up until Trump, all political scandals eventually had a legal twist, so I was almost always an anchor for live hearings and all of that, and the intelligence community. So I had this huge portfolio and when I came to NPR, we only had one program. It was all things considered. It started at five, not four, and it was an hour and a half, not two hours. Now we have three flagship two-hour programs every day with significant rollovers. So we update them. We change them as need be during the time it's being heard on the West Coast versus the East Coast. All of that has made it so that I could not conceivably do all the things I did back then. Now, because we have so many more platforms, so many more programs, that as much as I would love to cover politics, I even used to cover presidential campaigns a bit. I couldn't possibly do that. The Supreme Court is a full-time occupation if you do, if you have to do radio, digital, podcasts, social media, and anything else that comes along. So with all of that going on, does it ever get boring? Not really. Sometimes it's really hard. I've been reading lots of briefs in in a case involving Google and Twitter and um, whether they have complete immunity from lawsuits for for all practical purposes. And they're very hard. And I get home at night feeling like I've been beating my head against a a brick wall. But if it doesn't penetrate my head, I'm not going to be able to describe it in the simplest of terms, to regular folks, which is what I do for a living.
0: Given that you've been writing and reporting for more than 50 years, it's safe to say it is a skill of yours. (laughs) But what's different or what's even challenging about writing a memoir?
2: Well, what was most challenging about writing a memoir was doing it while holding down a day job. And um, that was the most difficult part. And I have to say that, you know, in addition to nights and weekends, I I did a lot of it on vacations. In fact, even this August, when I had already finished the book and it was being printed, I signed 6,000 book plates Wow! (laughs) so that people would buy the book. (laughs) Did your hand cramp at all? (laughs) I did it every night, and I listened to books on tape while I did it not mine, obviously, I would listen to some mystery story, and I would do it for about an hour, and I could do about three or four hundred in that time. And if I did it every night that way, I had a nice long vacation in August, and I got about 6,000 book plates done. That is impressive.
0: When did you land on the title, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships? Well,
2: you know, this is a book that's about more than uh, Dinners with Ruth or my, even My Friendship with Her. Uh, but in the last analysis, it's a. It, the publisher came up with the idea. I figured that they had paid me very well to write the book and that they should get the title of their choice. And the second part, A Memoir on the Power of Friendships, was my contribution.
0: Right, because you do include other friendships as well. Lots of other
2: friendships, including not just with my NPR sisters, but with my blood sisters who I talk to every week. For a long time, at least once. And sometimes we, the three of us, talk together. If we manage to organize a Sunday um, afternoon hour together, we do that. It's, you know, we don't live in the same cities. And so it's a good way to stay connected. And of course, you know, there were lots of justices along the way who became my professional friends. And in some senses, personal friends, too. Right.
0: Given that the relationships that you're talking about, from sisters to to friends, these span decades and, and multiple chapters in, in all of your lives, what felt right uh, at this point in your career, at this point in your life, to to write a memoir and a book about it?
2: You know, I, I to be truthful about this, I would not have written this book if my husband hadn't <laughs> basically weighed in and said, he thought I should write it. I had said no to books for years and years and years, and I really felt he was very clear about the fact that he didn't want me to write a book that I worked too hard as it is, and he wanted my time not have me up at the attic writing a book. And so he wandered in one day when I was having a conversation with the CEO of Simon & Schuster, Jonathan Carp, and the publisher of Simon & Schuster, and I had agreed to at least talk to them. And David, my husband, was my ace in the hole. He was, my, you know, and they kept getting rid of all my objections. They would give me a person to help with this or that or the other thing. I wouldn't have a deadline. Well, of course, as soon as I signed the contract, I had a deadline. But on that day, Jonathan Carp came up with a, a framework for a book that I thought I actually might be able to write. And that was the friendships, particularly of the women of my generation when we weren't weren't trying to break a glass ceiling. We were trying to get a foot in the door. And um so I thought that the idea was a doable idea, but I was still saying no. And I had my mouth literally open to say, and my husband doesn't want me to do it. And he says, I think you should write this book. <laughs> so that was the end of my objections and and I, so I, therefore, it got done.
0: We thank him for the nudging <laughs> <laughs> to get you over that, that literary finish line. You thank give him you. that your memoir is really putting writing to very personal memories, but now you're also touring and speaking about your writing about meaningful memories, and you're actually going to be at the Mandavi Center at UC Davis on February 3rd. There's really like this layering to all of this. What have these interviews and these talks in front of an audience added to your very personal experience and friendships with many people, including the late Justice Ginsburg?
2: Well, I do think that friendship, whether it's friendship with your family or friendship with your quote, friends or your professional friends, is the basis of living a life. And I I came to sort of formulate that idea in the process of writing this book. And in doing that, I think it crystallized how much friendship has meant to me from everybody in my life, including my husband's. And I think when you read the book, you you will see in, in very concrete terms how in a crisis, these are the folks who rush in to help you and to shore you up and make you able to keep your head above water. You know, they did that, my family and my friends did that when my first husband, Floyd, had a terrible accident and was significantly disabled for about five years until his death. Um, And I, I, I try to do that for other people now, and I'm not sure I would have known to do that without learning the lesson of friendship from my friends, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: And the fact that the first time you two met was before your days at NPR, even, you know, well before um, her days in the Supreme Court. Why do you think your professional relationship, what began as one, evolved into such a strong friendship over
2: nearly five decades? You can never entirely measure these things. And certainly in the beginning, I was the apprentice trying to learn something about law and the Supreme Court from Somebody significantly older than, more than a decade older than than I am, and who had already achieved a great deal, but was not really recognized yet. She was a professor at Rutgers Law School, and she had, I called her about the first brief she filed in the Supreme Court. And so, although our lives were hardly parallel, I mean, hers was really significant. Mine was perhaps occasionally journalistically significant, but nothing like hers. Our lives increasingly came closer together after she was appointed to the D.C. Court of Appeals and moved from New York to Washington and then to the Supreme Court where I was covering her now for the first time and trying to figure out how to keep journalistic boundaries at the same time that this woman who'd become my friend could stay my friend. And we became even closer because we were able to have those boundaries. And we had wonderful husbands who uh, complimented each other and complimented us to boot. And it it just evolved over time until the last year of her life when by then her husband had died and her daughter Jane and her son James would come to D.C. to help be with her in her apartment. But she wasn't even with them all the time, but she would come to dinner almost every Saturday night for that last period of her life when we were all in lockdown. And because my husband is a surgeon and had been her medical confidant for years, she knew she would be safe at our house. And so did her daughter, son, and her granddaughter, too.
0: You became like a pod, you know, like many of us created during the pandemic.
2: (laughs) Exactly. We were a pod. That's exactly what we were.
0: How were you able to compartmentalize, or I don't even know if that's possible, the loss of a friend who is like family, while the significance of Justice Bader's death and the vacancy that it created on the Supreme Court, how are you able to to look at them differently and or or did you? Was it even possible?
2: Well, there are two separate things. One is, you know, genuine personal grief at the loss of a friend. And the other is something. I had thought about quite a bit uh, as she became more frail. And I think every other person who covered the court had thought about it. I mean, I had pre-written her obituary countless times and had had to then throw them out or update them. But, you know, when I went away on vacation in 2020 to Cape Cod for about three and a half weeks... I wasn't sure she'd be alive when I got back, and I wrote not just the newest version of the obituary. um, For digital, for radio, I did a version that was about the politics of it, because that would be the first thing that would come up. Um, But I also did a personal remembrance that was the shorter version was on the radio, and it was still pretty long. It was seven or eight minutes, and the longer version, which was more than twice that long, was in the digital version. So I had thought through all of these elements, including anticipating how very sad I was going to be at losing a friend of so many years. And ironically, you know, Ruth died exactly a day after, I think, a year and a day after Cokie died. So I had had a lot of, of time to think about the loss of two such close personal friends.
0: Yeah, anchors in your life, you know, especially with friendship and support over the decades. You know, that tribute that you wrote was incredibly touching, and it was very personal, as you say, but it also did receive some criticism about the friendship being a conflict of interest, uh, given obviously your legal affairs correspondent covering the Supreme Court. Did you anticipate that criticism ahead of writing this obituary and this tribute?
2: Um, About the tribute, um, I guess I anticipated some of that, but I consider it not worth perseverating over. I mean, the fact is, when you know somebody really well, and I knew her really well, and I knew Justice Scalia really well, too, and they were at opposite ideological ends of the court, but I knew them personally very well, you know so much more than you would have known otherwise, and you can Enrich what you write about them when they're on the court. You write so much more profoundly about them and with greater understanding of what makes them tick than other people who don't have those relationships. And I consider it a great asset to my understanding of my beat and what I was able to bring to it and to bring to the people who read what I write and listen to what I say on the radio or on TV. Is covering
0: the Supreme Court different following Justice Ginsburg's passing?
2: Well, it's different than at any time in my years of covering the court because I had have never covered the court when there was such a lopsided ideological um, balance or lack of balance on the court. I mean, there's always been a center, and there is no center anymore for all practical purposes. The court would tilt one way or the other. It was definitely more liberal when I started covering the court in 1969, I guess it was, pretty much. But over time, it grew increasingly conservative, but nothing like the conservatism of today. So what was, you know, considered sort of fringe views, let's say, 10 years ago, is now in much more the prevailing view of at least five of the justices on the court. And so it's a very different proposition covering a court that's so ideologically riven and so dominated by a very the hardline conservative view.
0: Well, with that, I would love your thoughts on one of the biggest decisions last year and that started with a draft leak of the Dobbs decision that It effectively overturned Roe versus Wade, as we all know. I mean, but given that you know the nuances and the structure of the Supreme Court in a way that very little of us understand, with that lens, how do you think a leak of this magnitude was even possible?
2: Well, first of all, speaking of conflicts of interest, let's just put something on the table here. Journalists survive and prosper by getting people to talk to them. So having a leak of this magnitude at the Supreme Court has such repercussions for the way the institution functions within its own parameters. I mean, I've talked to many people who work at the court, who've worked at the court for a very long time, who are contemplating leaving because of the atmosphere at the court after the leak. And even the justices themselves, you you can hear it in their voices. Justice Thomas said he doesn't trust anybody anymore. Um, The conservative justices themselves don't agree on many things. They may agree on an outcome, but not how to get there. Um, The liberal justices, for all practical purposes, in the ideologically divisive cases, don't have a prayer. So it's it's a very different institution. And in part, it's because of that leak. Not entirely, but in part, it's because of that leak. I have often said that it's the only major journalistic coup that I'm very glad was not mine, because ev- everybody who looked at me would immediately run the other direction. I couldn't get anybody to talk to me about anything. And and you do need to know more than the words on a page. You need some sense of the institution. It is the third branch of government, the judiciary. And the fact that it's so, at the moment, such an unhappy place in part because of that leak, is, I think, problematic, let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I'm gathering is you would have handled that situation differently. Would you go as far to say as publishing this leak that it was irresponsible?
2: No, I I don't think you can say that. I mean, our job is to gather the news. Now, we, we know that there were two people's names on the story, and one of them doesn't cover the court, so I assume it came in initially through him in some way or another. It could have come over the transom, for all I know, and or in some fashion like that. But, I, you know, it's not for me to decide what's good to know, for people to know and not know. That would be the ultimate in censorship, which is why I'm very glad that nobody offered me this story, because I would have had to have done the story.
0: Given that the trajectory of your career, it really has given you this really unique and even unparalleled perspective in some of these biggest moments in history. I, I go back to your groundbreaking reporting about Anita Hill during Justice Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing that was back in 1991. And I'm curious what that level of deep reporting experience on that testimony and the aftermath. How did that shape your journalistic approach and even your understanding when covering Christine Blasey Ford and her testimony during Justice Brett Kavanaugh's hearing.
2: Well, I do remember sitting there on the day that she testified and hearing people say things like, well, it's over. And I thought, no, it's not. Um, you know, we've seen this uh, before, and Judge then Judge Kavanaugh hasn't testified. We don't know what, what he's going to say or what he's going to do, and, and we do know that... Um, Politicians fight very hard sometimes for their people or causes, and I, I was not particularly surprised um, that there was not any real investigation of the charge, in any way, charges in any way that would satisfy people.
0: What struck you most about these moments in history that, on the one hand, are deeply personal and intimate, but they're also intertwined with the public eye? You can't not think about the confirmation hearing of Justice Brett Kavanaugh without also thinking about the confirmation hearing of Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, The two are intertwined, even though these are very individual, personal accusations and hearings.
2: Well, that's true. I mean, there are some significant differences. Anita Hill worked for for Clarence Thomas, and although she was a young woman, she was a, a grown person. The allegations against Brett Kavanaugh basically concerned his latter years in high school. And there were allegations about him in college, but they were never actually in, and significantly investigated. And I suspect you're going to hear about that for on and off for years to come, that there will always be new wrinkles coming up about the Kavanaugh hearings. But there are some other similarities. One is that the Republicans were willing to do to wage complete war on on behalf of their nominee. And the Democrats in both cases really significantly mishandled the way they they dealt with this. And they made themselves and their cause less able to prevail by their sort of fumbling. And that was true in both these cases. So I'm not drawing any conclusions about the Kavanaugh hearings. I just think there were differences, but there were some also overbroad similarities.
0: If you didn't pursue journalism, do you think there's another field where you would find the same level of fulfillment? Well, you know, when
2: I was young, I I think I would wanted to be a detective. And that seemed obvious that I couldn't do that because there were no women detectives back then that I had ever heard of. So it doesn't seem a huge leap to say that I would then say, well, I could be a detective for the public, essentially, and tell people what's going on and be a witness to history and sometimes be an investigative reporter as well. And that's, I, I think there's a for me, anyway, that's the, that was a leap that was not that hard to understand.
0: Yeah, I can completely understand that as well. And given that the field that we're in, I mean, it's not just a job. It is part of our identity. And I can't have that identity for myself without also thinking about the relationships that I created along the way. So just ending with your memoir, what do you hope readers take away about the power of
2: friendship? I often tell graduates, when I give a commencement speech, that for all the things that I am telling them on this day and that the people who are speaking to them on this day about the importance of their profession and this and that and the other thing, the most important thing to know is that at some point in your life, you will be in a crisis. And if you have been a good person people will come and help you in that crisis and through that crisis. And the the best lesson to learn from that is how you can do that for somebody else.
0: Nina, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And that is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg, who will be at the Mondavi Center at UC Davis on Friday to discuss her new book, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. Still ahead, the Auburn State Theater in Placer County will come alive with the music of Elton John this weekend. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, Rocket Man, Benny and the Jets. Your song, I can keep going, but I think you have a pretty good idea of the artist we will be chatting about next. This weekend, the Auburn State Theater will come alive with Sir Elton John. The music will be performed by pianist and conductor Michael Sobe, along with a very, very talented team. But the event on Sunday is more than just celebrating Elton John, but raising money for a personal cause. Ticket sales will go to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and fund fighting blood cancers across the world. Joining us now is the heart and the talent behind this weekend's performance, Michael Sobe. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for making the time.
3: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Michael, let's start with that personal connection. Why will ticket sales go to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society?
3: My other half lost his mother almost a year ago it was february of last year and uh to leukemia and he's been devoted to raising money for the cause since then we did the light the night fundraiser um a big ls fundraiser and we did the walk here in los angeles in november and he raised over five thousand dollars for that and wanted to continue to to bring awareness and help to the to the cause. And so we came up with this concert idea for to celebrate. Well, not celebrate is the wrong word to honor his mother on the one year anniversary of her passing.
0: And so how did you decide on heading up to the foothills in Placer County and perform at the Auburn State Theater?
3: Gino grew up in Roseville, and so he has a large network of friends and family still in the area. And he had performed actually in, uh, I think, Fiddler on the Roof at the Auburn State Theater like a decade ago before he came to L.A. And so it was just all of the all of the stars aligned, I suppose, for the right connection to do it at their theater. This theater is beautiful. It's an awesome space. And the team there is just as lovely as can be. And so it's, uh, and then obviously with a huge poll with just his family alone, I think sold half the seats. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big group of uh, great people, so. Um, Yeah. That's how we ended up there.
0: Yeah. A big family showing up. And I do agree. I love I love Auburn and that theater as well. And you're about two thirds sold when I checked in on you on on Friday. So and and these ticket sales are going to this nonprofit, which is just wonderful. But the next logical question, why Elton John?
3: Uh, uh, That part probably doesn't have the biggest connection, um, aside from I have performed this concert a bunch here in L.A. I did it in New York a few months ago um in various iterations i've done it as a piano solo i've done it with a percussionist i've done it with a full band this coming sunday we're doing it with uh a percussionist a violinist and a singer as like doing background harmonies and stuff and it's Elton john has been one of my personal heroes i suppose since i was a kid i learned i grew up playing classical piano but uh always wanted to do something more than bach and beethoven and so Elton John and Billy Joel were kind of my avenue to, to veer off from what my teacher wanted me to do and do something fun for myself. And Elton John's always been a personal favorite.
0: And he's currently on a farewell tour. I would imagine yeah. you've probably seen him live before. I, I saw him in, La- in Las Vegas. It was wonderful.
3: Oh, I I missed the million dollar piano concert. There's a whole story to that, but I won't get into <laughs> it. uh <laughs> but the the we saw the farewell tour i was able to see it in 2019 and uh in my hometown in michigan and then my family came out my parents and my nephews and my um gino and i went to see him at dodger stadium on the second to last night of the tour and from what he says you know who knows Cher goes on tour uh, every time she says she's not going to <laughs> and so we'll see <laughs> we'll see what he does but um this was uh dodger stadium was supposed to be the final tour stop he'll do in North America. And so we didn't get to see the last night, which is almost regrettable because we didn't get to see Dua Lipa or uh, Kiki D. But the concert is just, it's incredible. And uh, his band is amazing. The fact that he can perform for three hours straight without taking a break and just sing and play his face off is is really remarkable. Yeah. It and, was- and, and, and fully entertaining. And he's 75 years old.
0: And so, it, and you're going to be honorating, honoring and celebrating, I combine the two words, Elton John, <laughs> this weekend. What can people expect? I mean, you've sold a lot of tickets. There's are still some available for Sunday. But what can people expect?
3: It's going to be a greatest hit. Uh, much like going to a concert of his, there's very few songs that you don't know. Um, we've actually curated the list with Gino's family. We had them all vote on their favorite songs, so they we gave them a selection of twenty five or thirty, and had them pick their favorites and counted all the counted all the votes, and so they basically built the set list for us. Um, so I, I really think there's there's only like one or two B sides out of a out of the two hours of the show that so everything else will be a sing along and uh hopefully enjoyable and bring back memories for everybody and where they where they first learned the song and why they love it and and hear their favorites
0: yeah bring up some nostalgia in the very best way it's not only you though you have a violinist a percussionist as well as a background singer too yeah
3: yes uh the, I, I've known all three of them for a long time. The percussionist and I, we actually did the show last night here in LA. Um, we started touring together in 2017 with Game of Thrones. Um, we became very, very quick friends on that tour. And then uh, the violinist Molly Rogers joined us um, in 2018 on the same tour. And again, instant friendship and then uh and molly has a beautiful voice you'll actually get to hear her sing on sunday as well um just on as a solo it's her voice is awesome and then the third person joining me is julie garnier and she is a vocalist and broadway actress and one of the best voices i've ever played for and we get to do we get to do a lot together um around la and san francisco and palm springs and uh, and she's agreed to come up and sing some backgrounds and probably do a little solo number in there somewhere, too. We just haven't figured out what that one is,
0: given that you've done this concert multiple times before, what keeps bringing you and also and also the talented musicians that join you back to keep doing it again and again?
3: I love it. It's that easy. it's it's a great time. I have fun. Everybody like the audience enjoys it again because of the nostalgia because they are familiar with the songs. they're there's such classic pop rock tunes that everybody can enjoy that still get tons of radio play. There's, and and he still sold out Dodger Stadium two nights in a row, whatever that seats 60, 80,000 people. So he's kind of a, still a big draw <laughs> more than, more than a lot of people could imagine being, uh, having been around for 50 plus years. And, and I just get to, do that and have fun for myself. This is a project that when I first did it was just for fun for me. It was just a, a way to, to go out and perform and do something that I don't get to do. I'm usually the accompanist or playing with the group or whatever. Um, and I'm never like, not that I need the spotlight, but uh, I'm never the featured person. And uh, this was just an excuse to do that really. And it's fun.
0: I was reading the event page, and mm-hmm. uh, it said that you will be playing on a majestic Steinway Concert Grand piano. What does that add yes. to the event?
3: <laughs> uh, it's just, it's a fantastic instrument. Uh, m- more than anything, the, the piano there at Auburn is, is spectacular. I got to play it for the most brief of times uh, when we were there in October checking out the space. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful instrument. And, you know, a nine-foot Steinway Concert Grand is just, there's very very few things that are as exceptional to to play on and and that one in particular is very very nice they all have a very different personality each all of them that come from the factory still have they have their own temperament and this one is particularly wonderful so and it just it produces a ton of sound so you've got um because it's a small orchestration we just have the like the three instruments and a couple of vocalists um, we still managed to, between the majesty, I suppose, of that piano and the percussion, still have a really full-sounding concert.
0: Given that this is a fundraiser and that you've already, like, you're almost two-thirds full, and there still are tickets available, what does it mean to you to have such a great turnout for for something that is going to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society?
3: it's amazing. Uh, I was, I was hoping to sell like a hundred seats. Cause that would have still been a great, a great thing for, it would have raised money. We would have still had, um, you know, plenty to send them. But when we started crossing over 125, 150, 200 seats, it was like, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. I actually probably should practice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, we're, we're at 228, I think was our count this morning and the space seats 344. So we're right at that two thirds number and hopefully we can, we'd love to see it go to 300 having that many people there is you just have a different energy. I've done the show before when there's 40 people in the audience in a small place in New York and it's fun and intimate, but, uh, you can't really beat having that many people around you at one time, all with some sort of like, it's going to an event, going to a concert uh, for everybody is a fun experience. And so your energy is a little better than, it's not a taxing event. You get to sit and actually enjoy, and you don't have to think, and you can just have a fun time. And having that many people do that simultaneously makes it more fun for me and, and and really pulls out the best of me, I think.
0: Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate
0: it. And that is pianist and conductor Michael Sobe, who will be performing the music of Elton John this Sunday at the Auburn State Theater. Ticket sales will go to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. That is it for Insight today. Have a wonderful day. I'm Vicki Gonzalez, and I'll catch you back here tomorrow.